you set out with Rangers and that that that, that that's schism that there is in Glasgow and in the west of Scotland, do you think that the rest of Scotland sees the Lions as a Scottish fairy tale? Oh yeah, I think there's there's a fair element of that. I mean, I, I always remember. I, I wouldn't say too much, but I, I always remember interviewing somebody uh, in one of the Presbyterian churches in Scotland, and he was the son of somebody who who was as high as you could get within that church. And I remember him telling me he was a Celtic fan, and it was during that period Celtic success they were on. The people were beginning to get TVs, and Celtic were on television, playing in Europe, you know, successfully, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they were represented on television in Scotland and in the Daily Record and everything else as Scottish. So that that was absorbed. It was absorbed partly by the Irish diaspora as well, of course, because it's taking a long time for that to be critically assessed. But, uh, you know, and one of the ironies for me with, with this particular guy, was a, he was a lovely fella, uh, but I met him six months a year later in the Barlands at a Christie Moore concert. So I thought, you've really bought into the whole thing, haven't you? You know, but I mean, he was... He was uh, it was it was anything but Catholic, so to speak, you know. Uh, so that I mean, there is people, and there was people, you know. And Alan Berners, who wrote in Celtic Minded Four, would be another example of people who wouldn't be Celtic minded, wouldn't wouldn't be Celtic supporters or whatever they support another club, and there is a certain pride and all that kind of stuff. But there's but but as Alan, I think, explains as well, you know, in terms of his age and different dynamics that were happening in the sixties, the Jockstein connection, there are things that 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 bring people together to admire that moment, regardless of whether they're Catholic, Irish or Celtic supporters. However, yeah. Sorry, just uh, what, what just I think, I, in, my, in my experience, and maybe because a huge amount of the people who wouldn't be Celtic fans that I would know would be Rangers fans, I do know and have known people who support a whole range of clubs over the, over the years. However, uh, there, is, <laughs> there is a massive kind of hostility towards that as well and the fact that it's still celebrated it's still remembered because it's for them uh, so to speak it's it's been shoved down their throat they don't want reminded of that no. when Celtic were the Kings Can I, I would just like to come in on that as well because I think Joe and I possibly differ slightly to a degree and it would only be to a degree I expect in terms of how we view um, Lisbon 67 being viewed by other Scots, and I would, I would acknowledge. I mean, I, I grew up in Arbroath from Glasgow originally, but I grew up in Arbroath on the east of Scotland, and I think there's first of all there are a lot of Celtic supporters in Arbroath, both Catholic and non-Catholic, and I think even even the non-Celtic supporters, I think there was a lot of sympathy and a lot of support for certainly Celtic in the eighties in Europe. And a lot of sympathy and recognition that I could, you know, just anecdotally that I was aware of, of Celtic 67 victory. And I know that Bernard Allen, big Dunfermline fan, as, as Joe says, that, that Allen has, has told us in, in various occasions that a large section of the Dunfermline support, for example, um, were very happy and very supportive of Celtic and wanted Celtic to win in Lisbon. So I suppose as someone who wasn't alive in those days, it's difficult to judge, but I would assume that out with Rangers, and I wouldn't even I wouldn't even claim that every Rangers fan didn't want Celtic to win, but I hope that's not too naive. But out with Rangers, 
I would suggest that there probably are slightly more um, people in Scotland that wanted Celtic to win than, than perhaps Joe <laughs> might acknowledge. I don't I mean, we can never judge it. Um, but I think for us, the key was whether whether it was 50% or 20% or whatever the percentage was, for us, I think it's undeniable that it was acceptable, partly because of the way that it was framed and the way that Celtic has been framed, even in our lifetime and since the 1990s and into the noughties and into the present day, where Celtic were framed in a way, and, and the Irishness of Celtic was packaged and framed in such a way that, that it was acceptable to Scotland, to mainstream Scotland, stroke mainstream Britain. And what I mean by that is that Celtic's Irishness was depoliticised. Celtic's Catholicism was depoliticised. De, de secularized almost, if you like, the, the equivalent of being depoliticized. If indeed Catholicism and Irishness were even acknowledged as being part of Celtic's identity at that time, we would argue that it's often downplayed. And when it's not downplayed, it's either it's either sectarianized, problematized as part of the sectarian so-called problem one half of the equal culpability thesis or it's just ignored. So we would we would argue that it was Celtic's victory was seen to be acceptable and desirable for some Scots and some British people, um, uh, you know, proud Brits if, if I can phrase it like that, simply and partly because uh, partly because Celtic were um, rearticulated as a as a British club, a club representing Britain and a club representing Scotland. Um, and Personally, I, you know, I, I think that's legitimate in many respects. I think that's partly legitimate. But I think what it does is it makes the central ethos of Celtic, two of the central ethos of Celtic, um, the, the Irish diaspora element, the Irish stroke diaspora um, element and the Catholic element, it renders these two elements meaningless um, except to the Irish Catholic community. And I think the Irish Catholic communities in Scotland um, have for too long been unable to openly acknowledge that Celtic's victory, and indeed Celtic just as a sign, just as a totem, that Celtic legitimately represents these strands of their identity. And, and, and they were keeping the heat down for too long. And I think the longer they've kept the heat down, the longer the Lisbon Lions, the more significance rather the Lisbon Lions in many ways has had, because it's been the one reminder that being an Irish Catholic in Scotland, and, and working class comes into this as well, I've no doubt the class element comes in, being a working class Irish Catholic in Scotland um, was was not something not to be ashamed of. It was something that we could be proud of because look at what our brothers did in Lisbon. Look at what we achieved. We became the champions of Europe and possibly the best team in the world. And I think that's, for me, that's the magic of the Lisbon Lions. And I I'm not suggesting in any way that it, that it should give anybody the right to exclusively say the opposite. In fact, it was never an exclusively Irish Catholic victory, and, and nor should it be. And I think the Lisbon Lions, the team itself, encapsulates that. I, call, I think it's magical. It encapsulates a magical symbolism of the Scottish and the Irish and the Catholic and the Protestant, or if you prefer, the Catholic and the non-Catholic coming together. And, and for this club and for this support that was never exclusively Catholic, never exclusively Catholic Irish, but was never ashamed of it and was proud of it, even like your man that Joe referred to earlier, 
a man who had no connection to, to Irishness or Catholicism, but would, was a Celtic Celtic mad guy who would go and watch Christy Moore concerts. You know, they're a, they're a club open to all, but yet they were proud of, the, of that, those two identities that, that were just encapsulated in Lisbon. Joe, can I, another thing that strikes me as well, I wrote a piece for the New European, which I, uh, for the 50th anniversary, uh, which I sent you, and I was struck by the number of times that people said this, you know, for instance, Alistair Campbell contacted me on Twitter and said, that's one of the first football games I ever I ever remember seeing. And Lawrence, <laughs> Lawrence Donegan, the bass player from the Commotions, who's from Sterling, um, he was saying like, you know, that, that the Lions was important because it was a, a, a kind of symbol of Scottish triumph, a, a folk history triumph. And I, I often think that there's a lot of factors like, you know, the, the strip was iconic. It, it worked really well on black and white TV. But, you know, Billy yeah. McNeil holding that cup to me is every bit as important as pictures of swinging London. It's a it's a it's a, a picture of it's, sorry, it's an image of of Scottish you know, uh, just Scottish success before deindustrialization. It's a symbol of when yeah. Scotland was preeminent. What, what do you think yeah, about there, that? There's a huge amount of things that you've said, and, and John in particular there as well. And God, you could spend a couple of hours taking it in different directions, and there's only so much you can penetrate uh, in this kind of format. But if I could just that, that idea of Celtic in '67. I mean, if if we could take take none of none of us are really, we couldn't get back to that moment as as conscientious kind of teenagers or adults or whatever. But if you can imagine England winning the World Cup, uh, I mean, everybody in Scotland probably wasn't like Dennis Law on the golf course, you know, because of how that was represented, because of how you know the newspapers everybody was reading at the time, and because everybody got round about the the TV. There must have been people in in Ireland were wanting England to win the World Cup momentarily. I'm not saying that that's the way that uh, they remember it. I'm not saying that's the way it would be two weeks, a month, six six months after they won it in terms of, I've had enough of this, I can't listen to this anymore kind of idea. So I think there's an element of that about Celtic and, and clearly Celtic were, were represented through a dominant British and Scottish media at the time and the words Britain and British and Scottish and all that stuff was fed, 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 pumped out. And, I mean, you absorb it. You take it on board. If I, if I think back to the 80s, uh, you know, I, I, I would have, I, would, I wouldn't say I would have, I was a supporter, but I supported the United and Aberdeen when I saw them in Europe uh, for, a, for a range of reasons. Uh, I didn't dislike them. Uh, they had some great players, outstanding characters and players. They played good football. Uh, I knew them. I'd been to their grounds. Uh, they were representing Scotland, yeah. you know. And this is for, from somebody who I don't go to watch Scotland. You know, I'm not a Scotland supporter. I'm not hostile towards them, but I don't support Scotland. Uh, and yet, I supported them because they represented Scottish football, British football. No, that didn't come into my thinking. Uh, and there would be occasions as well when I would want to see uh, Rangers win in Europe. You know, when it would all have to do with the uh, there's something going on here with I don't know if it's about to go off John uh, you know it's a bit about the coefficient it's about who they're playing uh, it's about how far can you go and all that kind of stuff it's about make Scottish football attractive for other players to come in and see it as, as worth it there's so many different factors going on in terms of the Irishness uh, I wrote 
the obituary for uh, Benny Lynch a few years ago, and uh, and the sorry, Joe, can you just explain Benny Lynch? Who Benny Lynch is for people who don't know who, well, who Benny, he is? Benny Lynch was a, a Glasgow-born world lightweight champion boxer, uh, and even when I was growing up, you know, everybody talked about Benny Lynch uh, as Scottish, and it would be represented as British as well. Benny Lynch's parents came from Donegal. You know, and nobody ever sat and asked Benny Lynch about his Irishness. They probably didn't need to at the time, not 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 at a time when you had a couple of streets in the Gorbals that were nearly Irish speaking because of the Donegal influence. It was a taken for granted thing, but it was something that people consciously and unconsciously hid. And it certainly didn't make its way into the, the narratives in the Daily Record or the Herald or, you know, future television. Uh so it's, it's about that kind of representativeness. And I think as well, you know, if, if you're sitting down watching the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games, you know, and I think we, we have this natural human urge to find somebody to support, find a side to support. Who do you like? You know, and if you knew somebody went to war with somebody else 20 years ago, well, I don't like them. There's there's so many different things come in to you lending your support, which is not, not seen uh, it's subconscious, it's unconscious. So many factors come in, uh, and I think there's always a bit of that about that Celtic victory, you know. And there's an age group thing as well, you know. There, there's a particular group of people who were exposed to football in the sixties. Scotland was very good at football in the sixties as well. Clubs in Scotland, Dunfermline and Rangers in the, in the European mm. final. Look, I mean, Scotland go down to down to Wembley and beating England and and etc. etc. Scottish football was at a high in the 60s and 70s and crawled into the 80s as well. I think there's so many factors to consider in relation to uh, who remembers, who celebrates, and what it means. What is the celebration about? What's the nature of that celebration? And I think a lot of people can can create a narrative around it in virtually any way they want. You know, and you could even build a narrative around it from from a kind of working class perspective, yeah. or from a wee country perspective, or a non Latin perspective. You know, but I think what we're caught, you know, in various conversations when John and I were together and we were talking about these kind of, kind of things, it was always first British club, Scottish team, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you think this is this is actually just a misrepresentation. And not only is it a misrepresentation of Celtic's victory, but it's a misrepresentation of the vast majority of people who went to support them that day, of the vast majority of people who go around their televisions that day and watch the game. And it's meaningfulness. There is nothing here about its meaningfulness. You know, and if we go through some of the, the Celtic history books, as, as John and I say in the paper, uh, some terrific books, great descriptions of the game and all that kind of stuff. The meaningfulness... It's just not there. You know, it's it's like standard newspaper reports of the game and you don't get that. You don't... I mean, it's a wee bit like if we can imagine all the games that were taking place in England in the 70s and 80s and the 90s where all these non-white black players were being slagged off and abused and, and the oh, commentators yeah. never mentioned it. Now, I'm not saying you should have mentioned it because it's maybe not their duty to be to be representing the law or the police or the governments and all that kind of stuff. But it's a wee bit like that. It's not mentioned. And what did the rest of us do? We all sat and watched it and got on with it. We never even thought too much about it. It was normal. Yeah. Yeah. I see, there's the other thing. 
sorry, sorry, John. Can I ask you a question in terms of um, do you think the club has 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 done well in how it has managed to kind of commodify or you know marketize the 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 uh, the legend of the lions without necessarily over commercializing yeah. it? Yeah, no, I mean, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Aye. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think I think the club's done pretty well, to be honest. And, I mean, they've, they've down, I would argue they've downplayed the significance that Joe and I have written about. And I think to some extent, the, they do tend to, the club, in very, run by various boards within Celtic. You know, it's not just the current board, the PLC board that's done this. But even when the Whites and Kellys were in charge, Possibly even more so when the Whites and Kellys were in charge. In fact, the, the elements of of the Irish Catholic dimensions of the club have been downplayed and have been softened for um, to be more palatable to a Scottish and British public. So I think, on one hand, there's there's been a commercialism of Lisbon '67 that Celtic, as a PLC, have done very well, um, you know, commercially with and have tread that narrow. You know, line between over sentimentalising it and and still keeping it fresh. I think they've done that very well, but I would still argue that the the sociological significance of it has almost been airbrushed out, except among the Celtic support themselves. Yeah. Um, now I'm I'm not I'm not suggesting I've got a magic wand or a solution for how the Celtic board, if if they wished how they would do that, because it is in Scotland, it is a difficult um, balance to be had. And partly, I would argue, partly because of the way that sectarianism is misunderstood and misrepresented in Scotland, where it is seen by many people in Scotland to be a problem if you publicly identify with Irish Catholic symbolism, certainly when it connects to Celtic. And it's partly because Irish Catholic symbolism, of course, when it's connected to Celtic, is very often connected also to Irish nationalism. So I understand the reasons why that can be problematic for some people. And so I think, I think for some reasons, some genuine reasons, even I would acknowledge that the, the sociological significance or significance of the Irish Catholic elements have been airbrushed or or kind of worn down a wee bit to become more palatable to other sections within Scotland. But the Celtic, Celtic as a club, I think, have, have milked it very well, and I don't blame them. Um, but for me, it comes back to, if I can just come back to the, the significance, I think I think we've touched on some of the elements where it's, it's no doubt the TV, the strip that became, you know, the, 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 the symbol of Billy became like, an icon, it is one of the most iconic sporting images ever. Um, I think we had the Beatles, we had music, we had we had working class people in the late 60s and 70s really emerging from the doldrums of, of post-World War II and, and I'm sure there are social historians that could explain this better than I could but I think all of these factors came together in this one moment but for me and Joe I think, I think I, I can speak for Joe here but correct me if I'm wrong but for us um, when we were reading the works of some of the works of, of you know, CLR James, clearly a classic that all of us are, are familiar with that work in sport and social science. But I was struck by reading the book by Afua Hirsch, and I hope I pronounced her name correctly, and, and we quote her in the article where she even talks about in, in 20, 
um, whenever, I think it was only two or three years ago, her book was published, so it was very recent. But she talked about how even in the, the late, you know, 2015, 2016 period, that as, as a British, or as she describes herself, I think, a Ghanaian British person, that she felt that her identity was not represented in British culture. And, and that was, that kind of struck a chord with us. Well, she, she says, and I'll quote her, we've got this in the article, she says, the narratives that you see on television, in film, and at the theatre, shape nothing less than your sense of your own life, your very perception of yourself. And she goes on to say, my first exposure to the notion that there were other black people in the world and that some of them lived in nice houses and had happy marriages was watching American sitcoms. Now, for someone to be experiencing that in, in the, the 21st century, and she did because she's talking about when she was when she was younger, but she's not, she's actually not that old, I believe. I think she's talking about in the, 20, the 21st century, even when she was a child. That struck a chord with us where we thought this was this was how Irish Catholics, certainly not, not all Irish Catholics, but a large extent of them were supposed Celtic, we feel. But this this strikes a chord, I think, with them, that their elements of their identity have been have been labelled unacceptable, have been labelled sectarian and and or have been completely ignored. And that's where we go on to say in the article that a, an equivalent assertion, I mean, not exactly, not an identically equivalent, but certainly some form of equivalence could be applied to the Irish diaspora in Scotland, who, who also experience and have experienced such discrepancies before, between their own perceptions of their identity and the promoted or dominant forms of Scottishness and Britishness. And we go on and say aspects of these dominant forms of Britishness and Scottishness, they can be charted on a calendar that performed like clockwork from the royal families, um, church attendance each new year through to the Queen's message at Christmas. What it means to be British and Scottish is, is is represented in ways that many of us as Irish Catholics in Scotland feel alien towards. It's just not us. Now we're not necessarily antagonistic towards it. I'm not suggesting that, and nor nor does it need to be an antagonism. But it's certainly not our identity. So just the, the same as black Ghanaian British identities were, were felt by some people certainly to be to be not visible in, unless they watched American sitcoms. I mean, imagine that. She feels more at home watching American sitcoms than she sees on her own British television. She doesn't see herself represented in British TV. I think that's what the Lions did for many people. It was a, it was a coming out of it's, it's legitimate and it's okay to be working class um, Scottish but with an Irish Catholic background or indeed even define yourself as Irish, as still as Irish, with a Scottish accent, that, that's okay. And the Lisbon Lions made that okay. And the, the older we get and the longer it goes in Scotland, and ironically, or paradoxically perhaps, being Irish and Catholic in Scotland and, and wanting to see those identities being um, portrayed in, alongside Celtic and using Celtic as a vehicle for that portrayal, rather than that being seen to be more legitimate Actually, paradoxically, it's become less and less legitimate in Scottish discourse, and that coincides with the post-1990s, I would argue certainly post-1990s, fetishism with sectarianism. And, and as I say, that's another discussion perhaps, but that then comes into being Irish Catholic in some respects, openly being Irish Catholic is sectarianised, but yet the Lisbon Lions made it legitimate. 
And I think we still, even people of my age and younger that weren't alive in Lisbon during Lisbon 67, I think we still look to Big Billy holding that cup and still feel a sense of pride that, that worked it for me. And for me personally, as an Irish Catholic working class man, for me personally, the biggest identity, the most proud identity I get out of it is working class. For me, it's about working class. We working class guys can do this. And I'm also aware of the gender notion of this. I mean, we working class guys and, and women can do this. We can do this. Um, but I, I grew up in a world in Scotland where I didn't see that being represented. Even the working class element, I didn't see working class culture represented in my education. And I seldom see it represented in, in, in official official um, forums of Scottish, celebrating Scottish public life. You see, there's there's a, there's a try joke. I try joke. Can I can I just just jump in there on that? There, I I was very heartened years ago. I went my first academic conference. I went to the uh, used to be an Irish studies conference in in Sunderland, and the year I went, um, uh, Paddy Lyon and Willie Mealy were giving keynotes and talking about it. And they're asked to write it. They're asked to come up with a, a kind of list of novels that they'd used to teach the post-colonial experience from from an Irish point of view. And Paddy yeah. Land said one of the greatest things he ever said. He said, if you want to learn all you want to learn about Irish post-colonial literature, he says, do what I do, which is I've taught a, 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 an entire module of Nigerian novels. And he said, that there's, if you look at the counter-hegemonic forces that you see in post-colonial literature, uh, yeah. the same thing happens in Nigeria, the same thing happens in India, the same thing happens with James and, and literature coming out of the Caribbean. I mean, the, the support of Celtic and the Lisbon Lions being the kind of the totemic thing about that is is for me about a counter hegemony. It's about rejecting the notion of the of the kind of the British state as established by Victorian nationalism. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, Paddy, and I think that's why Joe and I. I mean, you've put it better than I could put it, perhaps. There, that, but I think if I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying really is is why Joe and I actually chose CLR James and Hershey's kind of work to, to kind of give a framing, to give a theoretical frame to the article, because we were aware that this is a story of counter-hegemony. And, and in order, partly in order to not be accused by others, by, by critics of just being up to two wee Celtic-supporting Celtic guys, the right that are academics, right that sell it winning the European Cup, well, we are two Celtic supporters writing about Celtic winning the European Cup, but what we did is we went and looked at other post-colonial studies, one set in Britain by her, by Hirst, a, a Ghanaian British woman, and one um, by CLR James, you know, set in the Caribbean, as, 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 we, as we know, the famous um, Beyond the Boundary. And as you're, you're absolutely correct, many of the counter-hegemonic practices that existed um, in the Caribbean and, and existed in Africa are existing right now in Scotland and in Britain, and we were struck by that. So that, that was partly why we gave that the framework. Sorry, Joe, going ahead. Just going back to some of the some of the things John previously said there, and and, uh, and yourself as well, Paddy, because I think to understand to understand a lot of things in a lot of situations, you need to go outside to look back the way, uh, and I think that's particularly the case in relation to probably. Uh, Irish Catholics, Catholics of Irish descent in Britain and in Scotland in particular and just touching on some of the things John said, I mean uh, I was struck as a kid, you know, and my parents would have watched a lot of the films that they themselves would have watched when they were younger uh, from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and stuff and it was 
whenever you got a priest in a film, it was invariably an American film, you know, whether it was Bing Crosby or some of the other people, I don't know, Jimmy Cagney or whatever, you know, and even they, they had they had Irish names, you know, and yet they were big, well-known, famous, well-esteemed actors, but they all came from the States. Very few of them came, came from Britain. When you came to Britain, of course, the Irish or the Irish descended, the second or third generation Irish were making an impact, but they were never proclaimed uh, and we never heard about their Irishness. If you think of uh, you know, music in Britain is a good example. The Beatles, without the it's Irish that, influence, well, the, yeah. there is no Beatles. You know, and that became very clear when they became when they became a wee bit more mature and political in the seventies. And some of their songs were banned and all that kind of stuff. McCartney, Lennon, you know, give Ireland back to the Irish, or Lennon uh, doing some protests in New York, all that kind of stuff. If you look at Scotland. There is virtually absolutely no mention of Irishness at all or Catholic. I remember as a kid knowing that a certain actor, what was the programme called? High Living in Scotland. It was a, a, an idea of kind of whatever the one is just now that's in Scotland. There was until recently with Lorraine McIntosh in it. I never watched it, but uh, I'm aware that it's there. But, you know, the Coronation, East Enders type genre, but a, yeah, a Scottish cool. angle on it. Uh, and I knew that one of the actors on this programme was a Catholic. You know, and you think, why should I even know that? You know, because it becomes something that within your community, people mention, they stand out a mile because there's a Catholic. There's a there's a Catholic with an Irish name. He's one of us. What do you mean he's one of us? You know, and, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. so it's a bit like that. And then when you when you turn to humour, whether it's Ricky Fulton, further back to Lex McLean, uh, more contemporary only an excuse, there are certain representations of Catholics and Catholicism, the Catholic Church, and Irishness in there that you think, hmm, you know, that was funny, but it's Scotland and Britain I'm living in. It, it's people laughing yeah. at you rather than laughing with you. Yeah. So, yeah. And I can uh, remember from a Coronation Street story and Ivy tells them. Well, I think, was she the first first one to uh, come out as a Catholic in Coronation Street, John, or something? <laughs> well, just, I think... Or was it her that had the picture of the Sacred Heart on the wall? Uh, I think this connects. I was going to say, it's, again, the working-class lad growing up in the 1970s and 80s, um, I was I was one of many millions, no doubt, whose parents watched Coronation Street on a regular basis. So I grew up watching Coronation Street, and again, a great example of, of that, of being aware of other Catholics, the first time I can ever remember be, uh, Catholicism being represented, and they've done this, I mean, talking about post-colonial studies, that Coronation Street and loads of the programmes still do this to this day with Muslim identities and, and the, the other post-colonial or post-war and terror, perhaps, identities. They caricature Catholicism. The first time I became aware of, of a Catholic character, and she was a character, Ivy Tilsley, on, on Coronation Street, she was she was an openly, obviously Catholic character, and that allowed Coronation Street to develop a number of stories. And again, surprise, surprise, you think back to the 1980s, one doesn't have to watch Coronation Street to be able to guess what I'm about to tell you, some of the main stories that she was involved in were. She was the nutter Catholic, she was she was the the dogmatic conservative Catholic. The, the, the caricature of, it, of Britain's Catholic in 1980s, of Tory Britain's 1980s Catholic caricature. She was and there's some alcohol uh, thrown in there as well, John. Alcohol thrown in, yeah. She became an alcoholic, I believe, but she, was, <laughs> she didn't want sex before marriage for her children. She didn't believe in abortion. 
um, and and she was she was framed as being a bit of a nutter, you know, going to mass, having to go to mass, having to go, not and and her, the character, her character was pretty negative, and certainly where her Catholicism came in as part of the storyline and the plots, it was nearly always a negative storyline, nearly always to do with a British caricature of an extremely dogmatic conservative Catholic. Why am I saying that? Well, the reason I'm saying that is because I think that ties into some of the narratives we've discussed. I, as a 13, 14-year-old Catholic boy growing up in my broth, that was, that was my first exposure that I can remember um, to seeing Catholicism being dramatised on, on British television. And very much other, John, as well. Other, absolutely. That's, that's, that's exactly it. It's, it's part of the characterisation. We are other Catholicism and being a Catholic is, is other. But that also has an effect on Catholics as well, you know, yes. because if, if you're if you're growing up within a culture that absolutely dominates you, but you come from a home where you know being a Catholic is meaningful in a spiritual and a religious sense, and you get outside and you tend to hide it, uh, especially if you're in a workplace. You know, you leave school. You're in a workplace where there's very few of them. In fact, there's very few of them, and some 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 other people are very hostile to your faith. That has an effect on you uh, yeah. in relation yeah. to possibly, you know, self perceptions, psychological issues, and and maybe even the practice of your faith. You know, and I think we can see that today in relation to uh, Muslims and several other faiths in Britain, where very very quickly a lot of people move away from their parents and their grandparents uh, because they. they the rest of the culture absolutely dominates. But I wonder if, if there's a case that because of the post-colonial experience, the Irish, particularly the post-war dispensation Irish who you know, were working class, went to university, became teachers or nurses or doctors or whatever it was, you know, very quickly integrated into the upper working class or lower middle class in England and Scotland and kept their heads down because, and, and there was a, because it was, you know, for safety reasons, and they kind of began to identify generation after generation. There's that brilliant book, Susan Herbst's book uh, about politics from the margins, I think, where she talks about how within two generations, the black middle class in Chicago had kind of become the dominant, the sort of political institutions of, of Chicago and had moved away from their, their kind of working class ghetto roots. Yeah. I wonder whether one of the, the one of the functions that Celtic performs in the west of Scotland is, is that, you know, that you may have, you know, become assumed into this sort of kind of middle class or burgeoning white collar class, whatever it is. But the kind of benign nationalism of Celtic allows you to express your identity in a very safe, you know, place that you're among people who are just like you. And we don't have to hide anymore. And we don't have to integrate into the, yeah. the social systems that, you know, it, it in many ways hasn't replaced going to mass or, or the chapel for us. Yeah. Certainly now, Paddy, I think, I mean, with the, the church attendances, but no, I, th I think we've touched on that, and, and yeah, you're right, I mean, we're, we're right about that in the article, one of the supporters that we talked to, he talks about no more, I think his phrase is something along the lines of, we didn't need to hide our scarves anymore, we took the scarves out of the pockets, um, and I think that connects to, again, in the article, we, we cite a writer called Mia Angelou, Aye. who said, who describes the ache for home lives in all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are and not be questioned. And I think that's what the Lisbon Lions, and to some extent Celtic, I mean, if, to be honest, if the Lisbon Lions didn't happen, I think, and thank goodness it did happen and they did happen, but if, it, if they didn't happen and didn't win, I still think to some extent we would be able to have a bit of this discussion just about Celtic in general, 
But I think the Lisbon line speeded up and, and, and exacerbated the process where it enabled um, this group of people, or these groups of peoples, to celebrate their marginalised and sometimes despised identities in Scotland. They felt, they felt that this ache for home, they couldn't go to Ireland perhaps, or they didn't live in Ireland, or, but, but the safe place. And I, I can even remember this party feeling this as a boy in 15, 16, and feeling that the jungle was my safe place where I could go and sing rebel songs. I could go and celebrate James Connolly, um, even with, even in the 1980s, you know, but and, and clearly sing about Thatcher as well. Thatcher, Thatcher, get the F. John, there's a, there's a, bit, of, a bit of academic evidence uh, that I was involved in the, the Irish 2 project a few years back with Bronwyn Walton, Mary Hickman, Sarah Morgan. And, uh, yeah. and when, when it came to the research in Scotland, we obviously delved into the Celtic thing a wee bit more than what we did in England. And if I just, I've, I've got two, two quotes in front of me from that project. And two, two of the people we interviewed, this is what they said. Uh, the first one, it's not just the football club, of course, it's a lot more. You know, you can express an Irish identity and the safety at Celtic Park, whereas you wouldn't be able to express it outside. The other one said, it's our team, our club and our community. We can come together and we can celebrate publicly. We are we are recognised and the rest of the country can see us, even though many of them ignore or despise us. We're here and sometimes we're the best at this particular sport. Just to see the green and white hoops running out is evidence that we've survived despite what many have thrown at us. I think that's yeah. what you're saying, John, isn't it? Yeah, to some extent, yeah, to some extent. Although, as I say, I don't, I, I think I would probably be a little bit less, down, downplay a little bit more rather the, the, the despising element. I mean, I know, I think I think Celtic's victory was, um, was welcomed and celebrated by many non-Celtic supporters probably in Scotland. Um, I'm not suggesting every Rangers fan, as I say, went out and celebrated, of course they didn't. <laughs> I still, I still think, I still think there was a lot of good, good feeling and good faith towards Celtic by the non-Celtic communities, and I think to some extent um, that is still the case. I still think that's the case in Scotland. It's probably not as much the case as it maybe was when I was a bit younger, in the, even in the nineteen eighties. And I think there are reasons for that that I, that I could, that I would like to discuss, but possibly out with this podcast, certainly possibly. But there are reasons for that. But I think Celtic still. Garners a lot of good support, a, a, a positive support from non-Celtic supporters among Scotland. But as I say, I think one of the reasons that that may diminish and may have been diminishing since the 1980s is actually connected to um, the the Scottish treatment of sectarianism, and I think that treatment has framed an Irish Catholic identity when it's connected to Celtic, in particular, has framed that as a problem. So I think that's actually affected how some non-Celtic supporters view Celtic. But I would still think if Celtic went out tomorrow, and I wish they, I wish they would, but if Celtic went out tomorrow and played in the European Cup final, or a Champions League Cup final, I still think that lots and lots of non-Celtic supporters would want Celtic to win and see it as their victory. In the same way, Joe, that you and I, and I was the same as you with Dundee United and Aberdeen in the 1980s, um, especially as a guy growing up in Arbroath, surrounded by people who supported Dundee United in particular. I was desperate for, for Aberdeen and United to win in Europe, um, in their, European, their respective European finals and semi-finals that they played during that period because I, I, seen it as a, I, I seen it as my victory 
I knew it wouldn't be it wouldn't be as much my victory as it would be for the Dundee United and Aberdeen supporters, but I still seen it as partly my victory. And I think that's the way many Scots that don't support Celtic see Lisbon, the Lisbon Lions. Thank you.